We're going to read two passages of Scripture this morning in connection with the Heidelberg Catechism. The first is Psalm 88, and that one we read because it's one of these psalms that is, as you likely noticed as we sang, expresses what is the Catechism calls the inexpressible anguish of our Lord, that He suffered the pangs of hell. And then we're going to another passage after that, Romans 6, which is very helpful in explaining the other instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism related to the benefit and the comfort of that. So Psalm 88, O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before Thee. Let my prayer come before Thee. Incline Thine ear unto my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draweth nigh unto the grave. I am counted with them that go down into the pit. I am as a man that hath no strength. Free among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, whom Thou rememberest no more, and they are cut off from Thy hand. Thou hast laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the deeps. Thy wrath lieth hard upon me, and Thou hast afflicted me with all Thy waves. Thou hast put away mine acquaintance far from me. Thou hast made me an abomination unto them. I am shut up. I cannot come forth. Mine eye mourneth by reason of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon Thee. I have stretched out my hands unto Thee. Wilt Thou show wonders to the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise Thee? Shall Thy loving kindness be declared in the grave, or Thy faithfulness in destruction? Shall Thy wonders be known in the dark, and Thy righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But unto Thee have I cried, O Lord, and in the morning shall my prayer prevent Thee. Lord, why castest Thou off my soul? Why hidest Thou Thy face from me? I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. While I suffer Thy terrors, I am distracted. Thy fierce wrath goeth over me. Thy terrors have cut me off. They come round about me daily like water. They compassed me about together. Lover and friend hast thou put far from me and mine acquaintance into darkness. And now let's turn to Romans chapter 6 and let's just read the first 14 verses of that. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and our members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. We read that far in God's Word, and now we consider Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism and the instruction therein. Why is it necessary for Christ to humble Himself even unto death? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Why was He also buried? Thereby to prove that He was really dead. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by virtue thereof our old man is crucified, dead and buried with him. That so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is there added, he descended into hell, that in my greatest temptations I may be assured and wholly comfort myself in this, that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, terrors, and hellish agonies, in which he was plunged during all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell." Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, with this Lord's Day, the Catechism expands upon something that it touched on in the earliest Lord, earlier Lord's Day, which is the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was brought up with the method of His death, namely His crucifixion. That's our confession. And in this connection treating the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, it also treats our own death, as well as the miseries and the troubles and the suffering of our life. Again, in keeping with the great, great theme of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is our comfort. The Catechism doesn't merely teach the truth and the doctrine of Jesus' own suffering, and his death, and his descent into hell, but 
It applies it to us. That's evident even in the last question and answer, which asks, why is it added he descended into hell? And immediately begins talking about our temptations and our troubles and how his descent into hell, which it explains, is of great comfort and benefit to us. And that ought to tell us something. That when one considers the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, that He endured that and He went through that for our benefit. And that what He endured is what we deserve and what He also delivers us from. So that even the application of what happens to our Lord Jesus Christ and what He undergoes relates to my own suffering and troubles and afflictions in this life. And in this regard, the Catechism also is teaching us about death. The Scriptures call death the last enemy, a great and fearsome foe. That which strikes terror in our hearts is the cause, really, of all our troubles and all of our afflictions. And even in that regard, in connection with our Lord Jesus Christ, our whole life long, that's partly why He suffered His whole life long. Not simply because, as we saw, He had taken our sin. He had taken sinful flesh, flesh under the curse and wrath of God, weakened human nature, so that he must suffer from his birth until his death. But he delivers us from our sufferings and our afflictions and our troubles. In this connection, too, the Catechism treats the grave and hell. Treats them, of course, as they are related to and connected to death. And in the very last question and answer, too, we may even use that to consider all that comes before. In other words, to look at the humiliation of our Savior, to look at the humiliation of Christ, even His death, even His entering into the grave as His descent into hell. And that's what we're going to do this morning, to look at all this material really under that theme, the Savior's humiliation, His descent into hell. We want to look, first of all, at the inexpressible anguish. Secondly, the saving benefit. And here especially, we're going to look at the material that's found in the Lord's Day that relates to Romans 6. And then finally, the comfort, the complete comfort of all this. So, it should be clear to you, Beloved congregation, that there's an overlap here in this Lord's Day with the previous Lord's Day. The last question and answer concerns the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. Talks about His inexpressible anguish, pains, tears, and hellish agonies in which He was plunged during all His sufferings. And it brings it up in connection with the phrase, His descent into hell. But we considered that in the previous Lord's Day, didn't we? In the previous Lord's Day, which brought up his death, 
because it brought up the manner of his crucifixion, we considered meanly that his suffering wasn't merely at the end of his life, but he suffered his whole life long. Now the Catechism brings it up again, but it does now add these words, especially on the cross. It wants us to especially focus at his suffering there at death. And so we read also Psalm 88, where you get somewhat a sense of that. And we read that psalm because we need to remember that all the psalms really apply, first of all, always to Christ. They are His Word. They are His thoughts. They are what is in His mind. Some don't like to read the psalms, especially psalms like Psalm 88. Not only do they divorce themselves from that experience, they, I'm afraid, often have so departed from the Christian faith they don't know what suffering is and do whatever they can to avoid it so they can't relate to it that way, but don't even apply it to our Lord Jesus Christ. One reason the child of God, even if in his life now at present, he's not really suffering, that she really is in good health and things are going fairly well. We read the Psalms with great love and passion because if they don't apply to us at the moment, they always apply to our Lord Jesus Christ. The Catechism also has a bit of an overlap when it treats his death again, his death, and really now asks, why must he die? In other words, why isn't it enough that really he just suffer? Why must he die? And it speaks about that, and then in that connection, his burial also. But we want to look especially at what ties it all together, that what, that what ties together his lifelong suffering and the treatment of his death and his burial is explained in that phrase that he descended into hell and says that that phrase, that this is the explanation of the Reformed faith, that that phrase refers to inexpressible anguish and pains and terrors and hellish agonies that Jesus suffered. Now beside that graphical expressions of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, which are doing their best to express what the Catechism says is inexpressible, the Catechism here is teaching us what that descent of hell was not. And the Reformed faith says it was not a descent into the literal place called hell, where the damned live everlastingly. That has been the interpretation of this phrase. The Roman Catholics look at this phrase and they interpret it to be that Jesus went to the place called limbo, which is in their doctrine just like hell, but you can leave limbo if you pay a sufficient price or you have enough merit stored up somewhere or enough rich relatives spring you from that place, but it's otherwise just like hell. 
And this is where the Reformed faith also departs from the Lutherans. The Lutherans take the explanation that Jesus did not, of course, go to limbo, which they reject, but the literal place called hell. And the Reformed faith does not. Reformed faith says that this refers to suffering all the wrath of God, all the suffering, all the agony, all the terror of hell itself, and doing so in his whole life. And one way to really look at Jesus' life is that way, to remind ourselves that what's being described here is not simply what happened when Jesus' body was taken from the cross, or even something that started on that Friday, that awful Friday, when Jesus was first nailed to the wood of that cross and suffered and died, and then His body was taken off the the cross and He was placed in the grave. One could call that the descent into hell. And there's even something very expressive about that is hell and the grave are very closely related, often use the same words in Holy Scripture. But the Catechism here backs us up all the way to the birth of Jesus Christ. And you have to see Jesus lying in the manger, just born. You have to look at Jesus in the manger and see not a baby that's all comforted, with his mother near, but you have to see a baby that's already suffering the inexpressible anguish and terrors and pains of hell. And as Jesus grows and grows in understanding, grows in consciousness, experiences life, all of it is that. That's what you have to see when you see Jesus, when you read the phrase, He was a man of sorrows, not just a man who lived his life with some tears, who lived his life groaning under various burdens, but you have to see Jesus walking through life with the flames of hell, licking at His body. You have to see Jesus as described in Psalm 88 with the wrath of God washing over him, billow after billow, drowning in the wrath of God. And he endures that for some 30 years. Culminates, of course, in the cross. But that's how the Scriptures and the Heidelberg Catechism want us to see Jesus. Not not simply as is often done this time of year at Lent, where for a while there he suffered some hellish agonies and Maybe not even so hellish. But even the same people who practice those things and celebrate these things in weird and strange ways look at the sufferings of Jesus as not hellish, and certainly not hellish his whole life long. But that's what they were, according to the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, one advantage of looking at this Lord's Day from that perspective is it's helpful to describe not just the suffering of Jesus, and quite graphically, 
So we have a real and better sense of what was described in the previous Lord's Day so that we don't simply look at Jesus and say, oh, he suffered. And that's a suffering that even I can replicate. That's a suffering that I can replicate by whipping myself, punishing myself in some way, which is done in the Catholic faith in an attempt to carry some of the burden of our sins ourselves. Even nail ourselves to a cross. No, that, that suffering of Jesus can't be replicated by anyone living. Only Jesus could do what he did. You see, a human being has to be dead to suffer the inexpressible hellish agonies. And when men and women say, this is hell, we're in the middle of a furious battle, with people blown up all the way around. They say, this is hell. They don't know what they're talking about. Only the dead can experience hell and have a sense what it's like, but that's what our Lord went through. And this helps us understand that, but it also helps us understand the nature of death because what's connected here is death and the grave, death and hell. And what it reminds us of is that death isn't something you face just near the end of your life. Perhaps you look at elderly that way and you say, well, they're getting near death and they probably think about it a lot. Well, you ought to look at ourselves and, and say, I don't think about it enough. But what Jesus shows you is that the human condition, our condition, naturally under the wrath of God, is that we begin to die the moment we're conceived and born, just like Jesus. That's the nature of death. And it explains all the sorrow and all the misery. And you have to understand what makes death so horrible and fearful, there's many things, is that we know and the world knows. And the Scriptures make very clear death is the expression of the wrath of God. It is God's sentence upon man and upon mankind. In the day thou eatest of, thou shalt surely die. Are you a sinner? You die. And then what is death? Well, that was expressed just a little bit in Psalm 88. It's God stripping away from us everything nice and pleasurable. God taking away from us not just simply life. We look at death as well. We live. We have a right to live. I can expect a certain amount of life, and that's mine. And then God finally acts, and there's death. All right? No, that's not the way to look at it. Even your life, God makes us to know it's a life of death. Death because what is owed to us, what we are by nature. And so it afflicts us all of our life, all of our suffering. This is really what the suffering is all about. If you ask why this and why that, why all the tears, why all the trouble, why all the sorrows in this life, you could say it's death. And it's why we cover up, why we hide it, why we push it away. We're very uncomfortable with bodies around. We make it all nice at funerals. We try to make it all respectable. We hide the smells. We hide the disgusting nature of what death is. God taking life away. 
and bringing it back to the dust. It is disgusting. It is gross. But it's really what we're doing in all of our life. Why is the cosmetic industry so wealthy? Why do we pay so much attention to our body? Why do we get concerned over the wrinkles? Why do we worry when we see ourselves losing strength? Why do we even watch our diet and exercise? And the answer is because we're trying to fend off death. Because we're concerned about death. Death bothers us. There's nothing wrong in those things all by themselves, but we have to understand why we're doing it. And you have to understand that in the end, there is no cheating death. Death wins. Which is why there's a certain amount of disgusting grossness to the behavior of trying to stave it off. If I just have this surgery or apply enough cosmetic here, I can still look like I'm young and vigorous. No, you can't. You won't. No matter how much you apply yourself to diet and exercise, you will not extend your life by much. And what happens to Jesus here and why it happens remind us of that. It's not a normal process. It's not part of human life. It is human beings and human nature, including us, under the wrath of God. Oh, I know. What we're going to talk about in just a minute relieves us from the wrath of God in a very real way. So that whatever comes upon me, whatever is poured out upon me, whatever death I go, there is no punishment to it. There is no paying for my sins in it. But nevertheless, God does not take the suffering and the pain and the trouble away. Why? To remind us always. And if that's all it did, it would be sufficient of who and what we are and what we deserve. It's God's way of saying, you say you don't deserve this? You think this is hard? You think this is difficult? You, you think this is terrible? Think about the anxiety. Think about the terror Think about the agonies that we have in this life, and some of them are very considerable. I don't want to minimize that. Observe some time. A man dying from bone cancer, and you'll get a sense of how agonizing it can be. There's suffering in this life that may begin at an early age, and someone has to live with it for the rest of their life. So much so that we, we say they don't deserve that. Or this isn't the way it should be. And what God wants to bring to our mind is, you think this is bad. This is just a foretaste of hell. That's what the catechism is driving at here. When it says to us, don't look at Jesus just after he died. Look at Jesus his whole life and all his suffering. And, and you have to see the stench of death. You have to see the wave and billows of God's wrath. You have to see God driving a man into the fires of hell. And that's what we should be doing. We, we should see even what we undergo as Christians, as those who have no atonement, no punishment for our sins in any of this. We have to be brought to hell. We have to peer into the abyss. 
We have to remember how horrible it is. And, and here's what's interesting too. The Catechism talks about inexpressible anguish and terrors and pains. And you say, well, isn't that what it's trying to do? No, not really. Even the Scriptures struggle. Read sometime just the descriptions of hell in Scripture because that's what we're learning here too. Not just about death, but hell that follows. Hell that goes along. Just like we all know, when you die, you go into the grave. So also the idea here is when we see Jesus, when we see His sufferings, we need to be reminded that death goes to the grave and the grave goes to hell. It's a doorway right to hell. One reason we fear death. Why if we're in Christ by faith, there's going to be comfort, but the comfort is of something. And the of something ought to be that whenever we stand around the bed of a loved one who's suffering, or we are suffering ourselves, we need to remember, this is what I deserve. I deserve a whole lot worse. And then when God brings us down to the grave, or we go stand around a grave at their next funeral, there's going to be a family from this church doing that this week. And they have to lay Mr. Brower in the grave. Then they all stand there and look into that hole and picture that big hole is a bottomless pit that goes right to hell, except for one thing. Not anything we did, but what Christ did. That's what it's bringing to our mind. And you can put a good face on it, and you can cover it all up, and you can do whatever you try to do, but it's God reminding us you do not deserve to live. And not only do you do not deserve to live, but you deserve that pit of hell. Hellish agonies that the Bible can only describe as dying and dying and dying forever. Being an eternal flame like a log, burning up but never being consumed. Having worms eat away at your body and seeing it happen and the body is never eaten up. And after a million years of that, there's still no hope of escape. Oh yeah, even Christians try to deny that, get out of that. It's really a denial of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's really ingratitude for what He's done by trying to make hell a place where if we, if we suffer enough, somehow we can escape it. If we endure it long enough, then we've paid enough. No. Oh no. We look at our Lord Jesus Christ and what He did, and we look at that phrase, He descended into hell, we have to remember there is no escape from hell except one. There is no possibility. And once in hell, always in hell. There's no limbo. There's not even annihilation where after a hundred million years, someone suffering from hell finally disappears, vanishes. And the amazing thing is, is Jesus endured all that in one lifetime. Jesus went through all of that for everyone who believes in Him in one lifetime. And now add to it the phrase that the Catechism also considers, it calls it the death of the Son of God. The Son of God. The Son of God died. And the Son of God went to hell. A reminder that that Son of God, capital S, did that on our behalf. The other sons of God. But let's not 
minimize or take away from that phrase. Oh, of course, that phrase doesn't mean that God died in the sense that the divine nature died because then God wouldn't exist and God wouldn't be God. God can't die. God is immortal. But it does mean this, that God Himself, the person of the Son of God, the eternal and the everlasting God, who gave death as the punishment of sin, died in His human nature, of which He is the Father, remember? We consider that? That there's two ways Jesus is the Son of God. One, as to His person, He's the eternal Son of God, eternally begotten, and then it is human nature. God is His Father there too. And, and that just adds to the anguish and terror. That adds a dimension that we can't possibly... God, we said, in death takes everything away. Everything that He gives. Everything that He gives to every single human being. And God gives lots to many human beings. More than they know what to do with. All things they press into the service of sin, used to sin against God, God takes it all away. Except that person. That person in hell. And understand that part of the suffering in hell is what was taken away. The more one is given, and the more one abuses what one is given, and uses it in the service of sin against God, the more one suffers in hell. Well, think about what the Son of God had. Think what the Son of God was given. Think about the Son of God in His everlasting eternal life, living a heavenly life in the bosom of His Father with bliss and joys and riches that cannot be described. That one now dying and descending into hell and having all that stripped from him. And, and that partly answers the question, how could Christ do that in a lifetime? And the answer is because he suffered in the way no other man could possibly suffer. Now, there's a saving benefit of that benefit from the suffering and death, benefit from the descent of Jesus into hell. And you have to understand that that's necessary. That's what's being driven home here. Not essentially necessary. Oh no, God, God didn't have to send Jesus for us. God didn't have to come in our flesh and undergo this Himself. And remember that. God did this. God did this to Himself. Our God is the one who said, I'm going to do this. That, that, that beloved brings home our sin, even the, how bad it is and what we deserve. From a certain sense, the ungodly, well, they sin against God, and that's bad enough to desert or hurt eternal hell. But, but look at us. We sin against the God who is gracious to us, and we sin because we don't really care about His grace. All we care about is still ourselves. Oh, you saved me. Woohoo. No, 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 no. You, you, you don't understand what He saved you from. And that He didn't have to do this. And what God did when He did this. And God did this only because, well, He decided to do it. And God keeps His Word. But God Himself came and endured His own wrath. And the wrath for all of us who believe in Him with all our heart and took it all away. We need this benefit, beloved, because, well, 
The Catechism gets into this when it talks about the benefit. The benefit. Because we're going to suffer. And we're going to die. And we're going to enter into that hell called the grave. And we know what awaits on the other side of that grave. The benefit may be put in two different ways. And the fact that there's two is evident when question answer 43 talks about a further benefit. And I'm going to be somewhat brief, and I'm going to especially here look at Romans 6, but we may simply break up the two benefits of the death of Christ, His suffering the hellish agonies, His descent into hell into the grave, as the two great aspects of salvation we know as justification and sanctification. And I know, like in Romans 6, that sanctification is mainly often associated with the resurrection of Christ. And the very next Lord's Day is going to bring that home. There's going to be an overlap there too. We could have read Romans 6 for uh, Lord's Day 17 because, well, Romans 6 applies especially the resurrection, the newness of life to sanctification. And so we associate the death of Christ with justification. But let's always remember, you cannot separate those things. The benefit, the great benefit, one great benefit, of course, is justification. But there's another beside that, a further benefit. How is it put here? Well, notice the word satisfaction comes up. Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. No otherwise. No other way. No other way possible. To do what? To make satisfaction. Remember Lord's Day 5? Remember that? That's where that was brought up. Mention Lord's Day 5 and 6, maybe 6 times, 7 times. Satisfaction, satisfaction. God's justice must be satisfied. His righteousness must be met. God is a righteous God. God can't just simply wink at and look at sin has to be satisfied, His own justice. And it's saying here, that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus meant when He said, it is finished. Sometimes people look at that and say, well, that means Jesus' work is done. His work isn't done. Just stage one is done. He's still working now. He's been working since that moment. That's why He came out of the grave alive, to work, to labor. There's much more to do. He's working now in heaven. But no, by it is finished, He meant, the satisfaction is finished. It's all over. God is satisfied. God is pleased. God said, well done, a good and faithful servant. All of my wrath and all of the waves and the billows that otherwise would pour over all my people, all those given to our Lord Jesus Christ, it's all finished. It's all done. It's all taken away. And that's the benefit. Lay hold of that word satisfied. Remember that. Any sin, no matter how great, made by you, made by me, made by anyone who belongs to Jesus Christ, satisfied. Absolutely and perfectly satisfied. There's not one penny that's due from you and not any from me either. That's what Romans 6 verse 2 refers to when it says we are dead to sin. Dead to it. We often think of dead in sin. That we relate to depravity. But then dead in sin becomes dead to sin. That means sin can't destroy you everlastingly. 
Sin has no more dominion over you. That's going to bring you to sanctification. But notice that happens in His death. It says that it's due to the fact that we are, in verse 8, dead with Christ because we were buried with Him. We were crucified and we died with Him. We didn't pay the penalty, but in Christ it was paid. And there's such a connection to us in Christ by faith that all the benefits of His satisfaction come upon us. We're going to see that especially in the next Lord's Day. What's the benefit of His resurrection? The answer is when He comes out, you come out with Him. And how does the catechism really puts it? Well, all the wages, all the punishment of sin, all of it is gone. Gone, gone. That's the benefit. And that's the question you have to ask yourself. Is that a benefit for you? How do you know it's for you? Can't go in the Bible and look for your name somewhere. It says Jesus died for you with your name. The answer is you believe it. This is what Jesus did for all who believe. That's what he did. It's not real complicated. You believe that Jesus suffered and died in hellish agony, the inexpressible terror and anguish of hell for you? Then he did. Then he did. And faith doesn't doubt that. Faith doesn't wonder about that and question that. It believes it. Second benefit is sanctification. That too, Romans 6 enters into. It says in verse 8 that, or verse 6 that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed and henceforth we should not serve sin. It's what later on is going to be called also raised to newness of life. And if you want to know what this is all describing, it's describing conversion. That's going to come up in Lord's Day 32 so we can be somewhat brief. 32 and 33 it's brought up. And you know it has two parts itself. Sanctification has two parts. The crucifying of the old man, the dying of the old man, and the raisining or the enlivening of the new man. And that refers to our life according to our old nature in Adam, hence old and man. And it's not our old nature as such, but it's as we live our life in that old nature. And it's crucified. It's dead. It's buried. What does that mean? No more sin? No, not yet. No, not yet. But it is being killed. It is being mortified. It means, as we read, that sin has no more dominion. It doesn't have the upper hand. It's not reigning on the throne of my heart. That's the new man and the old man relationship. Old man is crucified. Still there, but crucified. And then there's a new man. In life, in Christ. Living unto Christ. Living out of Christ. And it's saying that's the benefit. And that's brought out when it says, By virtue thereof our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him, that so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign so that we may offer ourselves. And the may there is not, it may or may not happen. But it's saying this is what's going to happen. The idea is that these things go together. That one causes the other. They're related to each other. That as the one dies and is mortified, the other is enlivened and grows. And it's going to happen our whole life. And that's all a benefit of the cross. And notice... That's the way it is. 
There is also comfort in all this. That's brought out in 44. When it brings all this up and it says it has to do with my being assured and wholly comforted in this. Now if you shorten it all up, the comfort and the assurance is that He hath delivered me from the anguish and torments of hell. And you have to understand what that means. The one part is somewhat easy. And when you read that, it means what it says on the face of it. That in my life and in your life, if Jesus is satisfied for our sins, and if it's true that we have been crucified and are dead and buried with Him in our old man and our new man is raised to newness of life, then we may be absolutely certain no hell for me. No hell. When I look into my grave, when I look into the grave of loved ones, I don't see hell at the bottom. I see a bed where I'm going to go to sleep and the Lord someday is going to raise me up out of that bed. That's what I see. But don't forget what the implication of that. That is an amazing implication, by the way. But again, my point was a complete comfort. In other words, not just a comfort at the end of our life. What's the point of the catechism bringing this all up with regard to all of our life and talking about Jesus suffering hellish agonies his whole life? And the answer is because just like sin remaining in us, sin will remain, it just won't reign over us. But the benefit of this is, number one, that sin's going to come to an end. It does not get the victory. In fact, God uses death, which is my enemy. Death, which takes everything I have away. Death, which takes away even my name in the earth. So I'm soon forgotten after a few generations. No one will remember who I am. That death abolishes sin. Because now my old man is finally dead. Dead. No more sin at all, ever. It's an amazing thing. But the other is, Everything that is the expression of death. Everything that makes me afraid. Everything that causes suffering and pain and sorrow. Everything that's related to the wrath of God. Well, that's been born too. And again, like sin, God doesn't take it away. God doesn't say, now Jesus died, so you don't have to die. But oh no, Jesus died changing the nature of death. It becomes an opening to heaven itself. And so also my suffering. Oh, it may be great anguish, great pain, many, many tears. It may be a life long, but there isn't one ounce of God's wrath against me in it. It is not exacting what I owe Him from me. It is God killing my old man. It is God reminding me of my Christ. It is God bringing me to Him and saying, you need my grace day after day after day. Because all the hell of it, all of it, Jesus took away. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and Father in heaven, we thank Thee for our Lord Jesus Christ, for His suffering, for the inexpressible anguish, pains, tears, and hellish agonies that He endured in life and in death and in the grave for us. And we pray, O Lord, that we may enjoy the great benefit and comfort the assurance that that brings to us by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.